0: Our loving Lord, we come to you with open hands and open minds, not devoid of everything that we've learned to understand in the past, but asking that you would continue to build us up and supplement what you have trained us in through your word. We pray that you would speak to us by your spirit in our hearts, that our minds would be convinced of the truth of your word and that our lives would be changed. I pray, gracious God, that there are any who are not convinced that you are the Lord, the Savior, the giver of life, that through your word you would convince them of the truth of your word, that they would ask questions and be convicted that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the one given to us, the anointed one of God. For those who have been in their faith for many years, might there be pearls sown by you Wonderful gems given to us that we might understand with freshness and vitality the truth of your word. We pray this for the honor of your name, Amen. When I was at school, we would get a new ruler from our mom or dad every single year. It was necessary because within a couple of weeks. Maybe even in a couple of lessons, the 30-centimeter ruler, which was school re- requirement, was no longer 30 centimeters. It was somewhere between 15 and 20 centimeters. Not through any willful act of destruction, but because every ruler bore a one-word challenge to the little boy. You got it. I'm not the only one. Shatterproof. The bigger challenge that was posed to me one year, because my mom was used to me bending and checking the challenge that was on there, was my mom bought me an unbreakable ruler. You already know what goes through a young man's mind when it says unbreakable. It needs to be tested. It needs to be proved. And everybody knows the weakness of a young boy's mind, old boy's mind, whenever you see the word shatterproof or unbreakable. And the unbreakable one did last a little bit longer. I don't know what happened to it, but it, was, it must be around somewhere. But it wasn't worth anything. Because I had so bent and broke or bent and buckled this ruler that it could no longer draw a straight line. It went up and down and it went from side to side. You couldn't hold it down with any integrity because as soon as you did, one part of the ruler was up and the other one was down. I doubt that one centimeter, one millimeter even equaled one millimeter when I had finished with it because it seemed that on the longer side, one millimeter was now worth one centimeter and it didn't make much difference. Something always crosses our mind when we issued with a challenge Maybe I'm the only corrupt individual here, but when something says don't, I say, what would happen if? Don't you love the British? Keep off the grass. You've always got to go up and say, what happens if? happens like that with scripture, where God says, don't, and we say, there, I did. So, I didn't get struck down. So, what happens if? And you go testing the laws, and because you're not struck down by a bolt of lightning, you think, he's not really serious. I can do whatever I want to, and I know that he's going to be okay with that. It's a really stupid way to go about the scriptures, but even if it says shatterproof, it doesn't mean to say unbreakable. I was trying to think of a, a good illustration, and I was going to bring this massive pottery thing from home and have a brick here. But I knew that I'd have to tighten the face up before evening service tonight, and it just wasn't worth it. So I went for my real illustration, because I think the real illustration works quite well. When we look at Jesus in the Psalms, and we introduce it with these two Psalms, we see that there are two sets of people. And so as I as I start the sermon, I just want to focus on those two sets of people. We've got the contrast in Psalm one. You've got the good guys and the bad guys. You've got the righteous and the wicked in the words of the Psalm. There are only two types of people. Nobody in between. Nobody who's undecided. The righteous and the wicked. That's a contrast. Strangely enough, I've met very few people who say I would fall into the bad people group. When I speak to anybody... They almost feel as though God is going to look on them and say, well done, very good. You deserve to come into my kingdom. Very few people class themselves as wicked. They're always in the righteous category. So let's try and look at this contrast. The first three verses describe the righteous person. He doesn't walk in the council of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of mockers. And so we've got this, this person who will not even entertain sin. And you see the progression of righteousness to sinfulness by, it's one thing just to walk alongside somebody who's going through a trouble time and they don't share the same conviction that you do. It's another thing to stand and to start entertaining some of their thoughts. And it's something completely different when you're so comfortable that you go in and you take a seat and you relax with them and their ways will become your ways rather than a godly way necessarily becoming a good way. So there's this progression from walk to stand to sit, from taking advice, counsel, following the path, the way, and then being comfortable taking a seat. They're those righteous people. And then on the other hand, we've got the wicked. It's a contrast. Where the righteous ones are planted by streams of water, there's signs of life. There's vitality. they grow. There's security. They're planted. There's fertility. They bring forth fruit in season. There's perpetuity, their leaves do not wither. There's prosperity. whatever they do prospers. That's the tree planted by streams of water. Contrast the picture of the wicked. The wicked is very, the, the wicked are very different. Um, sorry, second half of chapter one, verse 46. Not so the wicked. Instead of living, they like chaff. Instead of being planted, they're blown around by every different thought that crosses their mind. By every page they look at on on the websites that they look at, they change their opinions and they go this way and then that way. But verse 5 is quite interesting. Give me a few brief moments to explain what the psalmist is saying. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. God knows your ways. He knows your thoughts. He knows everything that there is to know about you. What does it mean that the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous? You see, there's something quite uncomfortable for somebody who does not love God to be in the presence of a righteous person. It's uncomfortable. The righteous person doesn't even need to say anything. And immediately, a person who does not walk in the way of the Lord feels as though, I don't like this company. I feel judged every time I'm with them. I don't like the way they look at me. And they feel as though the whole world is looking at them, condemning them, or particularly Christians are looking at them and condemning them, where Christians haven't even said anything. But the mere presence of a Christian means that they can't do what they naturally would want to do with all their mates. Now, if you think that going to heaven is going to be a pleasant experience thereafter, think again. If we battle to get on with people in church, just imagine spending eternity with them. The one glorious thing is that we're all going to be perfect, so it's going to really ease the pain quite substantially. But you see, if we're not in fellowship with God, we're not going to be in the company of the righteous. We're not going to want the day of judgment where God shows us what we really like It's a great contrast, and once again I must point out that there are no there's no third category it's the righteous or the wicked, no hope of eternal rest or respite if you're the wicked only two categories there's no undecided group there's no well I'm thinking about it, but I'm not sure group there's no group that allows you to say. I want to worship God in my own way. Or the God that I love would never do X, Y, and Z. You see, it is God's way or not at all. That's the difficult thing for us to cope with. We either worship God or we don't. Two categories. In the words of Jesus from Matthew 7, every good tree bears good fruit. And a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is sorry, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, it's thrown into a fire. By their fruit you will recognize them. So that's the contrast that we have in Psalm one. We move on to Psalm two, and we see a conspiracy the original personal rebellion that you had in your own hearts against God means that you're going to start finding people who agree with you. You're going to stand together with others. And it's not just one or two people. It's nations that conspire. Right from the time Adam and Eve, first sinned against god and said we don't want to listen to your commands it's filtered down not just from one or two people to every single person in this world every single person has this rebellious streak where they say why nothing happened let me test the system see if it works and so people throughout the ages doesn't matter whether rich or poor doesn't matter what background we come from, what language we speak, we have all stood together, united against God. At one stage, all of us were in that group. It's not just one group of people or one country or one philosophical group or one level of education. Everybody alike has become an object of wrath. Should I be surprised that the world stands against God? Should I be surprised that the person sitting next to me on an airplane doesn't want any more conversation when I tell them that I'm a pastor? Suddenly, I might as well be a, I don't know, short-term salesman, Salesman. insurance salesman. Suddenly, yeah, that's, that's nice. So headphones on. Let's close off this minister just in case he tries to convert me, which is obviously what I try to do each time. But I shouldn't find it surprising that people don't want to know about God. Because Psalm 2 says that's what we're like. No exception. We're in a sinful world. What does surprise me, though, is the amount of time and effort people spend in trying to convince others that there is no God. I better just check my audience very quickly. And the ones at the back aren't listening, so I'll use the Father Christmas illustration. Let's suppose that the big man in the red suit is not real. I don't have to take a whole lot of time and effort convincing everybody else that he's not real. Even if somebody says, listen, I really believe that he's not real. I say, believe what you want. It doesn't matter. I don't care. If he's not real, then leave it. If he is real, leave it. It doesn't make that much difference. Have you noticed how many people stand against God and they stand on a podium and they want to proclaim that God isn't real? They want to write signboards on notices on London buses to say God does not exist. They spend money trying to convince individuals that there is no God. Has anybody done that against the Easter Bunny? Flat Earth society? No. Earth is not flat. Get a life. And yet, They stand together because they've got a point to prove. And so people conspire together and stand. I've got a whole number of university professors that say that there is no God and we will prove it. Well, good luck. You see, they they band together to try and give some credence to the lie that they're trying to live out. And it's not just they stand against God, but they stand against his anointed one. They don't love Jesus. They don't believe that Christ is the sovereign who came into this world to save sinners. If God had no power, just let it go. But the fact that they carry on saying i've got to make sure that everybody nobody listens to christians goes to prove that psalm 2 is exactly where they are they boast all the more let's break their chains they say let us throw off their fetters the more they try the less effective they are at doing anything because they don't want anyone authority in authority over their lives and the spiritual danger is it's not just well i believe in god so i'm spiritual The spiritual danger is that the wicked are called those who stand against the anointed one. If you don't believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter what God you serve. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you believe about God. If you stand against the anointed one, you are passed with the wicked. That's the bottom line. Next few verses, we see the conqueror. This is not a David and Goliath story. It's far more serious. Because when you get to verses 4 through to verse 9, it's not just a Goliath as a big person. It's the Almighty. And we've got people who are mocking the Almighty. Finding friends to join their WhatsApp group or their uh, blog page or whatever else to, to prove that there is no God. Let's join together. Let's shake our fist at God and see what he can do to us. And the Lord scoffs. And at this point, I was going to break my pottery because that's what the Lord does. Here is an insignificant little individual person on an insignificant little planet. On an insignificant little solar system on the size of the universe. And you're saying, I don't need you. It's like a mosquito saying, John, I can overthrow you. And you know what I do with mosquitoes? I will hunt them down and... With that awesome and righteous indignation, God turns his anger towards those who say, get lost, God. I'm going to bring it down to human administration. Maybe we can understand it bit better. Doing its rounds on one of the social platforms was a, a chap who was sentenced by a woman judge to, I don't know how long it was, and he flew into a rage and he jumped right at the bench and he grabbed this judge by the throat. And suddenly there were a whole bunch of people pulling him apart. Now, when I go into a courtroom, I don't know about you, if I were to go into a courtroom, I would respect the person who is my judge. I would call them your honor. I'd listen to what they have to say. I might respectfully disagree but I certainly wouldn't rile the person who's going to sentence me. If you get up their nose, the minimum sentence could be changed to a maximum penalty. Now that's true with a, a weak, moral, mortal, limited knowledge judge. How much more it should be true of a God who knows every single one of us. He knows the secrets of our hearts. He knows our motives in committing the sins that we commit. And there is no excuse. And when we turn around and then tell God to get lost because we don't have any time for him, are we surprised that he will dash us to pieces like pottery? The series is called Jesus in the Psalms. So in the light of the Psalms, let's go just through to verses 7 and 9, and you will recognize that from the Acts 13 passage that we read. In fact, it's not only found in Acts 13, it's found in Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 5 as well. A couple of other places, but I'm just going to focus on the Hebrews 5 passage. This shows me that this isn't just some psalmist sitting down, writing a hymn, and just saying, okay, well, that's a, a nice thought. Let's all sing about it. But it's actually pointing us towards Jesus. We've got a, a reference to the Lord and the Messiah, or the Anointed One, as we have it in the Old Testament. But now we've got a far clearer picture. So Hebrews chapter 2, sorry, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. So here we've got Jesus, the high priest. Verse 5. So Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. What that's telling me is that Psalm 2 is not just an isolated psalm about people conspiring against God. That tells me that this is a psalm about Jesus because the writer to Hebrews has made that direct connection. And if that's the direct connection, what is then inferred is that God sets his anointed one on Zion, his holy hill, verse 6. He's the one who people stand against in verse 2. By extension, the Lord is the perfect example of the righteous one who does not walk in the council of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And Jesus now has taken everything that was deserved for us, and he's taken on himself. And everything that was from him has been given to us. So his perfect life, his righteousness, has been imputed to us. Think about that for a moment, because we're going to celebrate communion, and what we so often focus on is the fact that Jesus died for my sins. Absolutely correct, 100% true. He died to take away God's wrath, 100% true. He was the atoning offering the propitiation for our sins absolutely true but more than just taking our sins on himself he had to live a perfect life so that our his righteousness would be imputed to me so it's not just the case of saying okay deal done everything's paid for live a good life but it means that when god looks at me he looks at the perfection of jesus christ over me that's awesome So whatever I was doing as a wicked person who deserved the condemnation of God, smashed to pieces like pottery, chapter 1 of uh, Psalm 1, God says, I look at you and I see the perfection of Jesus Christ. I see the righteous person who has lived a 100% perfect life. Not just sins removed, conscience cleansed, but you are 100% perfect. He died for our sins and lived a perfect life for our righteousness. Instead of me being shattered, Christ is shattered for me, and I remain intact. These two Psalms close with a warning rulers kings people everywhere respect honor fear the king who was who God has installed because there's no room for my ego and God's glory in heaven one of them's got to give way it's not going to be God's glory listen to the words that are used in the last verses to tell us how to respond to this king be wise be warned serve celebrate rejoice kiss take refuge so if you don't want to do that then God is going to pour on you individually the threat that he has promised. We can either live in a deeper relationship with God or rebel and go our own way. We can either respect God and honor his son, or naturally we would ignore God and despise the Messiah. We can either live in relationship with God or we can comply outwardly just to get, hopefully, the results that we wanted. In other words, we can either kiss the son because we love him, or we can use that Judas kiss of betrayal. Outwardly, oh, yes, we're all all good guys because we all go to church and everything's good. But uh, inwardly, we are in rebellion towards God. So back to the start, there are only two types of people. There are either those who love, worship, honor, respect, and grow in God day by day, or you're not. It's as simple as that. And if we're not sure where we stand, let the Psalms teach us. There's no group of uncertainties. You're either a tree planted near streams of water, and when the, when the difficulties come, because they're living trees, they can bend and they can move, but they're never broken. Or you're the dead chaff that the wind blows in any direction. On the one hand, we have the blessed who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, verse 1 of chapter 1. The blessed who take refuge in him, uh, Psalm 2, verse 12. The blessed whom the Lord watches over. Blessed who take refuge in him, 2, verse 12. Either that or on the other hand, there are those who reject God. Who stand their ground in defiance against God and they've chosen, therefore, a path of destruction. They're banned together against God. And they go and they might try and bend. They might try and go with the flow, but ultimately they're going to be broken. I don't think I'm saying anything that the Bible's not saying. All the psalmist is doing is to say, which one are you? You're either going to be flexible, tree planted by the streams, or in defiance, you're going to be broken. Was it worth it? It's worth me breaking a rule. It's worth me breaking pottery. It's worth me breaking anything that you one day will want to be broken. Because Christ has become the broken for us. Defy God. Be inflexible. And you will be shattered. The wicked have no substitute. They've got to take the full wrath of God on themselves. But they've got nobody else to blame because they've defied God. There's no way to run. I've got two rulers here. Which one are you? The one who's bent and still remains intact because God is your strength or the one who is totally shattered? Mm -hmm. Can't be both. And if you're not for God, you're against Him. That's the message of Psalm 1. There is a Messiah who blesses, encourages, builds up, strengthens, defends, and nurtures the tree planted by streams. If you're not that, I can give you no hope because the only hope I have is in Jesus. Let's pray. You are broken that we may be healed. And you were poured out that we might have life. Help us to drink at your life-giving fountain, Lord. Ultimately, our pride is going to be broken. Either this side of the grave, when we still have a, turn, a chance to turn to Jesus, or beyond the grave, when our fate is sealed. Teach us, we pray, what it means to trust in Jesus to rely on him for forgiveness and to live our lives in the reality of the salvation that you've given freely to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.